Chapter Ten of Tenterhooks by Ada Leverson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor. Chapter Ten, Shopping Chez Soi. Edith was expecting Aylmer to call that afternoon before he went away. She was surprised to find how perturbed she was at the idea of his going away. He had become almost a part of their daily existence and seeing him was certainly quite the most amusing and exciting experience she had ever had. And now it was coming to an end. Some obscure clairvoyance told her that his leaving and telling her of it in this vague way had some reference to her, but perhaps she thought she was wrong. Perhaps it was simply that, after the pleasant intercourse and semi-intimacy of the last few weeks, he was going to something that interested him more. He was a widower, and still a young man. Perhaps he was in love with someone. This idea was far from agreeable, although, except the first and second time they met, he had never said a word that could be described even as flirtation. He showed admiration for her, and pleasure in her society, but he rarely saw her alone. The few visits and tete-a-tetes had always begun by conventional, commonplace phrases and embarrassment and had ended in a delightful sympathy, in animated conversation, in a flowing confidence and gaiety, and in long discussions on books and art, and principally people. That was all. In fact, he had become, in two or three weeks, in a sense, l'ami de la maison. They went everywhere with him, and met nearly every day, and Bruce appeared to adore him. It was entirely different from her long and really intimate friendship with Vincy. Vincy was her confidant, her friend. She could tell him everything, and she did, and he confided in her, and told her all except one side of his life, of which she was aware, but to which she never referred. This was his secret romance with a certain girl artist of whom he never spoke, although Edith knew that some day he would tell her about that also. But with Aylmer there was, and always would be, less real freedom and impersonal frankness, because there was so much more self-consciousness. In fact, because there was an unacknowledged but very strong mutual physical attraction. Edith had, however, felt until now merely the agreeable excitement of knowing that a man she liked and in whom she was immensely interested, was growing apparently devoted to her, while she had always believed that she would know how to deal with the case in such a way that it could never lead to anything more, that is to say, to more than she wished. And now he was going away. Why? And where? However, the first thing to consider was that she would see him today. The result of this consideration was the obvious one. She must do some shopping. Edith was remarkably feminine in every attribute, in manner, in movement, and in appearance. Indeed, for a woman of the present day, unusually and refreshingly feminine. Yet she had certain mental characteristics which were entirely unlike most women. One was her extreme aversion for shops, and indeed for going into any concrete little details. It has been said that her feelings for dress were sure and unerring, but it was entirely that of the artist. It was impressionistic. Edith was very clever, indeed most ingenious, in managing practical affairs, as long as she was the director, the general of the campaign. 
but she did not like carrying out in detail her plans. She liked to be the architect, not the workman. For example, the small household affairs in the flat went on wheels. Everything was almost always perfect. But Edith did not rattle her housekeeping keys, or count the coals, nor did she even go through accounts, or into the kitchen every day. The secret was simple. She had a good cook and housekeeper, who managed all these important but tedious details admirably under her suggestions. In order to do this, Edith had to practice a little fraud on Bruce, a justifiable and quite unselfish one. She gave the cook and housekeeper a quarter of her dress allowance in addition to the wages Bruce considered sufficient, because Bruce believed that they could not afford more than a certain amount for a cook, while he admitted that Edith, who had a few hundred pounds a year of her own, might need to spend this on dress. Very little of it went on dress, although Edith was not very economical, but she had a plan of her own. She knew that to be dressed in a very ordinary style, that is to say simple, conventional, comme il faut, suited her, by throwing her unusual beauty into relief. Occasionally a touch of individuality was added, when she wanted to have a special effect, but she never entered a shop, very rarely interviewed a milliner, it was always done for her. She was easy to dress, being tall, slim, and remarkably pretty. She thought that most women make a great mistake in allowing dress to be the master instead of the servant of their good looks. Many women were, she considered, entirely crushed and made insignificant by the beauty of their clothes. The important thing was to have a distinguished appearance, and this cannot, of course, easily be obtained without expensive elegance, but Edith was twenty-eight and looked younger, so she could dress simply. This morning Edith had telephoned to her friend, Miss Bennet, an old schoolfellow who had nothing to do and adored commissions. Edith, sitting by the fire or at the phone, gave her orders, which were always decisive, short, and yet meticulous. Miss Bennet was a little late this morning, and Edith had been getting quite anxious to see her. When she at last arrived, she was a nondescript-looking girl, with a small hat squashed onto her head, a serge coat and skirt, black gloves and shoes with spats. Edith greeted her rather reproachfully with, "'You're late, Grace.' "'Sorry,' said Grace. The name suited her singularly badly. She was plain, but had a pleasant face, a pink complexion, small bright eyes, protruding teeth, and a scenario for a figure, merely a collection of bones on which a dress could be hung. She was devoted to Edith, and to a few other friends of both sexes, of whom she made idols. She was hard, abrupt, enthusiastic, ignorant, and humorous. "'Sorry, but I had to do a lot of—' "'All right,' interrupted Edith. "'You couldn't help it. Listen to what I want you to do.' "'Go ahead,' said Miss Bennet, taking out a notebook and pencil. Edith spoke in her low, soft, impressive voice, rather slowly. "'Go anywhere you like, and bring me back two or three perfectly simple tea-gowns. You know the sort of shape, rather like evening cloaks, straight lines, none of the new draperies and curves, in red, blue, and black.' "'On apro?' asked Miss Bennet. "'On anything you like, but made of liberty satin, with a dull surface.' "'There's no such thing,' 
Grace Bennett laughed. "'You mean charmeurs, or crepe de chine, perhaps?' "'Call it what you like, only get it. You must bring them back in a taxi.' "'Extravagant girl!' "'They're not to cost more than—oh, not much,' added Edith, at the most. "'Economical woman! Why not have a really good tea-gown while you're about it?' "'These will be good. I want to have a hard outline, like a Ferguson.' "'Oh, really? What's that?' "'Never mind. And suppose you can't get the shape, Grace?' "'Yes?' "'Bring some evening cloaks, the kimono-ish kind. "'I could wear one over a lace blouse, and it would look exactly the same.' "'Edith, what curious ideas you have! "'But you're right enough. "'Anything else?' said Miss Bennet, standing up, ready to go. "'I like shopping for you. "'You know what you want. "'Buy me an azalea, not a large one, "'and a bit of some dull material of the same colour to drape round it.' "'How extraordinary it is, the way you hate anything shiny!' exclaimed Miss Bennet, making a note. "'I know. I only like matte effects. Oh, and in case I choose a light-coloured gown, get me just one very large black velvet orchid, too.' "'Right. That all?' Edith looked at her shoes. They were perfect, tiny, pointed, and made of black suede. She decided they would do. "'Yes, that's all, dear.' "'Might I kindly ask,' said Miss Bennet, getting up, "'any particular reason for all this? "'Are you going to have the flu, or a party, or what?' "'No,' said Edith, who was always frank when it was possible. "'I'm expecting a visitor who's never seen me in anything but a coat and skirt, "'or in evening dress.' "'Oh, he wants a change, does he? "'Don't be vulgar, Grace. "'Thanks awfully, dear. You're really kind.' They both laughed, and Edith gently pushed her friend out of the room. Then she sat down on a sofa, put up her feet, and began to read rhythm to divert her thoughts. Vincy had brought it to convert her to post-impressionism. When Archie and Dilly were out, and Edith, who always got up rather early, was alone, she often passed her morning hours in reading, dreaming, playing the piano, or even in thinking. She was one of the few women who really can think and enjoy it. This morning she soon put down the mad, clever little prophetic Oxford journal. Considering she was unusually the most reposeful woman in London, she was rather restless today. She glanced round the little room. There was nothing in it to distract or irritate, or even to suggest a train of thought, except perhaps the books. Everything was calming and soothing, with a touch of gaiety in the lightness of the wall decorations. An azalea certainly would be a good note. The carpet, and almost everything in the room, was green, except the small white enamelled piano. Today she felt she wanted to use all her influence to get Aylmer to confide in her more. Perhaps he was slipping away from her. She would have been only a little incident in his existence— while she certainly wished it to go on. Seeing this, perhaps it oughtn't to go on. She wondered if he would laugh or be serious today. whether... Miss Bennet had come up in the lift with a heap of cardboard boxes and the azalea. A taxi was waiting at the door. Edith opened the boxes, cutting the string with scissors. She put four gowns out on the sofa. Grace explained that two were cloaks, two were gowns all she could get. "'That's the one,' 
said Edith, taking out one of a deep blue colour, like an Italian sky on a coloured picture postcard. It had a collar of the same deep blue spotted with white, a bird's-eye effect. Taking off her coat, Edith slipped the gown over her dress, and went to her room, followed closely by Miss Bennet, to see herself in the long mirror. "'Perfect!' said Edith. "'Only I must cut off these buttons. I hate buttons.' "'How are you going to fasten it, then, dear?' "'With hooks and eyes. Marie can sew them on.' The deep blue with the white spots had a vivid and charming effect, and suited her blonde colouring. She saw she was very pretty in it, and was pleased. "'Aren't you going to try the others on, dear?' asked Grace. "'No, what's a good? This one will do.' "'Right, then I'll take them back.' "'You're sweet. Won't you come back to lunch?' "'I'll come back to lunch to-morrow.' said Miss Bennet, and you can tell me about your tea-party. Oh, and here's a little bit of stuff for the plant. I suppose you'll put the azalea into the large pewter vase? Yes, and I'll tie this round its neck. Sorry it's cotton, said Miss Bennet. I couldn't get any silk the right colour. Oh, I like cotton, if only it's not called sateen. Good-bye, darling. You're delightfully quick. Yes, I don't waste time, said Miss Bennet. "'Mother says, too, that I'm the best shopper in the world.' She turned round to add, "'I'm dying to know why you want to look so pretty. Who is it?' With a quiet smile, Edith dismissed her. End of chapter 10